0: thank you for listening to this interview and as always if you would like to contact me you can find me on instagram facebook or twitter at yoga for social justice be well in this interview i talk with dr ann glegg Associate Professor of Religion and Cultural Studies at University of Central Florida. In this interview, we talk about her latest book, American Dharma, Buddhism Beyond Modernity. Throughout part one of this interview, Dr. Glegg stresses how whiteness and expressions of Buddhism as counterculture rising in the 60s has informed and shaped the way white Buddhists presently ignore issues of racial injustice and delegitimate the need for actual change in American Buddhist spaces. Listen in to part one of my interview now with Dr. Ann Glegg. So welcome to this episode of 824. Um, I am your host, Valen Jordan, and today my guest is Dr. Anne Glegg, Associate Professor of Religion and Cultural Studies at University of Central Florida. Dr. Glegg's latest book, American Dharma, Buddhism Beyond Modernity, captures how contemporary American Buddhism has shifted over the past generation. Welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you, uh, Valen. Thanks for the uh,
0: invitation. So let's get started here. So tell us a little bit about your work uh, in the field of social justice, how Buddhism connects to that. Maybe you'll share a little bit with us about your book.
1: Uh, the- yeah, sure. So I'd say, you know, my kind of social justice work tends to revolve around diversity, equity um, and inclusion initiatives. Um Uh, especially with lgbtqia populations um and also you know in the field of racial justice um so um let's see some of the recent work that i've been doing um so on a personal level um i've been working with um looking at how how to think about whiteness you know the construction of white identity as a kind of socio-cultural identity, um, how that fits in with kind of spiritual practice. So looking at spiritual kind of techniques, such as, you know, Buddhist mindfulness or uh, the practice of inquiry, um, which is a spiritual practice that I do in a a group with the Diamond Approach, how how those kind of techniques can be used to deconstruct whiteness, you know, to recognize whiteness as a false identity that is harmful for self and others. Um, so I've been doing, I've been kind of blending, you know, kind of racial kind of justice kind of work with my spiritual work, with other people in my spiritual group. Um, I've actually been taking part in, a, in a, a group within the wider school of the Diamond Approach called um, Soul and Society, So it really looks at how, you know, this harmful societal structures um, kind of show up and how you can use spiritual work that has traditionally been used to kind of deconstruct the individual ego, how you can kind of expand that to really look at the socio-cultural ego. Um, So that's been, you know, really rich, um, quite humbling, you know, quite humbling to see the ways in which you know, I am, you know, conditioned, you know, as much as an ex-white person, you know, um, but very rewarding, you know, very rewarding to kind of feel um, that I'm bringing together, you know, two great passions, uh, spirituality and social justice together in my own personal kind of spiritual life. Um, but then I'd say, you know, another big part of my kind of social justice work right now is really my scholarship um and so um my book american dharma has a uh, chapter in it called the dukkha of racism dukkha is a buddhist word that typically uh, is translated as suffering um or unsatisfactoriness so it would basically translate to the suffering of racism you know the suffering kind of Caused by racism. And in, in that chapter, I basically track um, diversity, inclusion, and equity work and racial justice work that's been happening in American Buddhist convert communities um, for the last, you know, 30 years. Um, and so the convert communities that I look at, my research populations in American Dharma historically have been drawn from white. Uh, middle and upper middle classes um, and you know as you know as communities of overwhelmingly white communities have you know unfortunately you know been characterized by you know racism and, um, kind of unconscious whiteness um, but there's been you know a small population that's increasing um, of buddhists of color and their white allies that have really been trying to bring awareness to racism in these Buddhist communities, um, and so I, in this, you know, in this chapter, I basically, I think, you know, I did can't remember how many interviews, maybe twenty interviews um, with Buddhists of color, and um, basically, you know, document uh, the type of work that they've been doing. So I basically look at the different strategies uh, that Buddhists of color and some of their white allies have been do, have been, you know, initiating within Buddhist communities to overcome racism and to make the Sangas, you know, truly a place of refuge for multi, you know, cultural populations. Um, So, so yeah, so I think that, you know, one of the, one of the reasons that I think of that as social justice work and not just scholarship is because um, I think it's really, you know, it's really important to validate this work as authentically buddhist so one of the big obstacles that buddhists of color in these communities have faced from you know white practitioners who have been resistant to their efforts is that they're not doing buddhism that they're bringing in you know these you know foreign kind of values into buddhism and kind of ruining buddhism and so in my research i've really kind of wanted to show how you know how this work does express you know Buddhist practice and principles, you know, with great integrity um as well as innovation. And that the larger project in the book really shows that Buddhism is a you know continually developing kind of tradition that's always you know in conversation with its specific cultural contexts. So I feel that you know the scholarship um on Black Buddhists right now is you know, really, in a way, a form of a form of uh, my social justice activism. Um, and I've been really, you know, gratified to get, you know, really positive feedback and actually go into some Buddhist communities um, and share my research, you know, with them and kind of think together, you know, even after writing this chapter. So I've, I've been really fortunate to, yeah, to develop some really fantastic Uh, relationships uh, through the research
0: awesome and so I'm curious and I'm going to um, take something that you just talked about with regards to the work that happens with Buddhists of color um, and their white allies and circle back to something you mentioned earlier with regards to um, how you're thinking about and critiquing whiteness within sort of uses of using spiritual techniques to help critique Uh, whiteness? Yeah, sure. And so I'm curious as to how you've both documented in your book, but then also noticed this in the group that you practice in, the ways in which resistance comes up, and how resistance is responded to. Yeah,
1: no, that is a brilliant question. Um, So in um, American Dharma, um, what I I basically, I basically identify two Uh, major response major kind of obstacles you know resistances to the work that's being done by buddhists of color so the first major area is there's a claim by many white sangha members that you know talking about racism or you know kind of supporting you know meditation sits just for you know they're called affinity groups just for buddhists of color um or, is a form of political activism um, so it, it's basically deemed as political and not buddhist um, and mm. so in separating you know in separating it out in saying this is not buddhist it's a way to basically delegitimate that work you know and to say that it doesn't belong um, in the in the you know Buddhist community, um, and so that's why um, you know so and then so the essentially you know white white members uh, say this work is political and we're coming to the you know sangha to the Buddhist community to meditate and not to you know attend a political rally or be you know lectured politically. So that's why it's so important. That's why the question of like is this Buddhist is such a it's such a weighty question it's not a neutral quest question because when you seek to define something it's the definition's always involved in you know the control of something so if this isn't buddhist it doesn't belong here so there's a way in which it's deemed as apolitical and therefore irrelevant to buddhism um that's the first major kind of move against this work and i just want to add you know that 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 notion that Buddhism isn't is itself apolitical is really problematic. You know, historically mm-hmm. Buddhism has always had relationships with politics. You know, religion is always political. It's always embedded in wider social, cultural, and political contexts. So you know, one of the ways in which when Buddhism you know came to the when Buddhism first came to the US, it came through immigrants you know Japanese immigrants brought um, Buddhism to the United States I think it was in the mid 1900s they were invited over to you know work as immigrants and they first came to Hawaii and they brought you know as Japanese immigrants they brought their you know their religious traditions including Buddhism with them so Buddhism you know in the U.S. was you know really brought by immigrants but then you've also got that we call Sometimes scholars call that the heritage Community lineage, but white Buddhism is generally um, located with you know the 1960s counterculture, um, and that, that, the one that Buddhism came through, those kinds of communities, the kind of counterculture communities, the image of Buddhism was a very particular historic one it wasn 't necessarily representative of what Buddhism actually looked like in Asia. So you have this kind of construction of Buddhism that you know that comes to the United States, um, that you know basically positions Buddhism as a kind of a historical, a social, and a political phenomena. That that's you know that's a very limited way of looking at Buddhism historically. So already saying Buddhism is not particular in a way is all it's it, it's it's a very limited historical way of looking at Buddhism. So it's problematic you know, on a number of grounds. Um, But then to get back to, sorry, to get back to your original question, the second way that um racial justice work in Buddhism is being kind of slapped down by, you know, some of the white uh, Sangha members is that they have said that it is a, not just apolitical, not just irrelevant to Buddhism, but actually in opposition to Buddhist principles. So let mm. me give you an example. So one example would be, You know, one of the major areas of work around diversity, equity and inclusion has been to support POC affinity groups. So, you know, these could be weekly sitting groups just for, you know, POC members to kind of meditate together to learn about the Dharma together in a kind of safe space. And then there's also been a tradition of POC only retreats, you know, Spirit Rock has, you know, held a weekly retreat for about the last 20 years okay. just for POC Buddhists. So a lot of white Buddhists gotten really upset about this. So they basically said, you know, that is a form of like segregation and that they see that as, you know, in opposition to Buddhist understandings of reality as kind of inter, you know, interdependence. Um you know, or they've said, oh, well, you know, the Buddha rejected the caste system, and this is kind of creating a new caste system. Um, So they've used Buddhist kind of philosophy to, you know, oppose kind of initiatives like that. Um, Another, you know, area of um, like a kind of hotspot has been um, some white members have felt that, you know, in talking about racism, you are, you know, generating anger and that, you know, Buddhism's about not being angry and about kind of rising above, you know, the kind of emotions of, you know, regular life. Um, And so they've really kind of used that. They've kind of weaponized, you know, um, that teach Buddhist teachings on, you know, things like anger, interdependence, no self. Um, to basically try and shut down, you know, POC Buddhist initiatives.
0: Um, that is really interesting because I have, in my own um, sort of contemplation, thinking, reflection about things, have found myself asking the question, but what about attachment? Like, if I have these Black-only spaces, aren't I reinforcing ideas of attachment? Um and so what you just said, I think, helps to sort of uncomplicate what I have been uh, just reflecting on in my own mind.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, and I think they're really great. I mean, what really, you're asking, you know, all the right questions. It's like you've got these Buddhist principles, right, Buddhist ideals, um, and then you you need to – well, first of all, I'd say, you, you know, one of the one of the issues is that, you know, often people have – I don't necessarily mean you, but often, you know, practitioners have quite a romantic and abstract idea of Buddhist principles, you know, and then they're measuring these abstract principles against actual lived realities on the ground. Um, So I would say the first thing to do would be to like really get a sense of, you know, the history of, you know, thought around attachment, like how have Buddhists across, you know, time and space kind of thought about non-attachment and practice non-attachment, you know, so you want to get really clear that you really understand the kind of like, you know, depth and, you know, nuance in in individual Buddhist concepts. And I think that a lot of uh, Americans and just in general practitioners, you know, they don't always have access to that kind of knowledge, you know, they're not Buddhist scholars, you know, Um, but, you know, what, what I find often when I talk to, you know, Buddhist practitioners is, you know, you, are you realize how kind of limited their, their understanding and how romantic, how romantic a view of certain things in Buddhism, you know, that they have. So, you know, once you get a sense of how has that principle actually you know, there's a spiritual ideal, but then there's also, like, how actual communities operate, you know, in real-life conditions that are often really different than an ideal. Um, and then I think in any in any Buddhist tradition, you know, in any religious tradition, but, you know, in, in Buddhism as well, you know, you can always find different interpretations of the same principle. So one of the things that was quite interesting to me working on you know, Buddhists of color, and also in the work that I've done on LGBTQIA Buddhists, is that both advocates for these groups, and people who object to these groups, often use the same Buddhist concept, you know, they use it for them, and they use it against them, you know, so that's Mm. really interesting. So like, for example, the teaching of no self, you know, a lot of people also oppose identity-based groups in Buddhism because of the teaching of no self. They say, you know, why would you identify with being, you know, LGBTQIA or, you know, a Buddhist of color? Like, that's against no self. That's a, if you have that identification, that's a reification of self, you know. But then you also find that, you know, I also found that a lot of queer Buddhists, you know, that they had they actually found the doctrine of no self really supported their queerness because they said, oh, because no self means that you have this dy- dynamic, you know, contingent self. And that's how I, ex- that you know, that's how I exact experience my gender, you know, flexibility as something that is like constantly shifting and changing. So I think one of the issues with the no self argument is this, that Often it's, it's, it's normally only minorities, be it racial, minority, m- m- racial minorities or, you know, sexual minorities that are considered as being attached to identity. But I think that, like, yeah. what I found in my work with, you know, my own investigation of my own whiteness, that whiteness is an unconscious identity. Whiteness is an identity that most people, it's like the secret identity, right? It's like an identity that you don't even recognize because it's considered a kind of transcendental identity. Like other people have color, you're, you know, above color. So what you could easily say, well, why am I attached to my whiteness? You know, why am I attached to my whiteness? See what I mean? You can flip the teachings of non-attachment around both ways is what what I'd say. Um, does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And, and it is extremely helpful because I have to tell you, I probably for the last six months, (laughs) I have been sitting around just spinning on this idea of ideas of attachment. And so I'm a yoga instructor and, um, having my black only spaces for people who practice yoga with me. And so, um, and I've just been spinning on this idea of and recognizing, one, that I didn't understand all of the pieces of ideas of no attachment, ideas of, of clinging and suffering and what creates all of that. Um, and then also just trying to piece all the things together as to whether or not I was reinforcing or if Black-only spaces or spaces that are intended only for people of color are reinforcing some some notion Um, well, and yeah, yeah. so I appreciate everything that I'm learning from you right now and I find it incredibly fascinating and I hope people who are listening are also able to sort of grapple with even just thinking about their own sense of self, like what they have been reflecting on about themselves with regards to whether it be race or gender or sexuality, but then also piecing together um what it means to have spaces that feel safe because I think there's the other part to that too. Yeah, um, I
1: mean essentially, you know, I think like with you know POC spaces, you know, POC spaces will be needed as long as, you know, other spaces remain unconsciously white. Once there's no you know, the POC spaces are formed because the, you know, the general space that's supposed to be the welcoming space for everyone isn't welcoming. It's marked by an unconscious whiteness. And so, you know, I, you know, I, if we want, you know, if a lot of Buddhists say, oh, we don't like the POC spaces because, you know, we want to be one Sangha, you know, but the thing is, is that if you talk to minorities, they don't experience the Sangha that exists as a one sangha like for them it's already the white space or the hetero you know heteronormative space so the poc groups and the you know the queer affinity groups are reacting to the reification of dominant identities so if we want to end you know the poc or or the affinity groups like we've all got to work together to make the you know the mainstream space truly inclusive Um, One of the, you know, and this is definitely an ongoing, you know, conversation in American Buddhism. Um, And I did some field work on this amazing retreat, it was called was it was a retreat on forgiveness at Spirit Rock. Um, It was about two years ago, it, it happened. And it was the first retreat at Spirit Rock, that I'd been taught the first, you know, not it was it was an open retreat, it was for, you know, anyone from any kind of racial identity. But it was the first open retreat that had an all uh POC teaching team which is kind of insane when you consider how many re- you know Spirit Rock you know it's I don't know I think it just had its third maybe 30th year anniversary and they do retreats you know every week probably so in say 30 years it was the first time a regular retreat had had you know an all POC teaching team um But that retreat was really extraordinary because the participants on it said it was incredibly diverse. The the student body was incredibly racially diverse and incredibly diverse in terms of gender and sexual orientation. And even even though they did have, you know, a POC smaller affinity group and and an LGBTQIA smaller affinity group at the retreat, When I did field work with people, you know, from both of those groups, they said this was the first retreat that they'd experienced where they didn't have to go. They didn't feel that they needed those groups and that they'd kind of gone just because, you know, they were used to supporting them. But the mainstream retreat itself was so, you know, welcoming, safe, inclusive, that those groups were no longer needed. So for me, it's really, you know, just a question of like, you know, these are, you know, skillful means, these are, you know, spaces constructed now as safe spaces, as spaces of refuge, you know, because they're needed, but hopefully, you know, through the work that sanghas are, you know, committing to doing, you know, that they won't, they won't be needed in the future, you know, that's, you know, that's a kind of, I think that's definitely the, you know, the vision for the, you know, the people who run these groups and, you know, go to them.
0: Um yeah this is all wildly fascinating and I could go on
1: <laughs> sorry as, I talk a lot <laughs> uh,
0: so many different things here um but I'm just curious like how did you come to this work like did you just wake up one day and say you know what I'm going to study <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> and- yeah, no no well
1: you know I just it is actually an interesting question isn't it because it's like um is it just social conditioning, you know, or is there some kind of, you know, cause I'm a, you know, practice Buddhism. So I do think, you know, sometimes think about karma and things like that. Um, just on a more kind of immediate level. I think that, you know, when I, I basically grew up Catholic, um, I went to Catholic school. And when I was a kid, I was, I think I was the person that had the most kind of impact on me uh, was my grandmother. Um, her name was, I was, I'm named after her. Uh, her name was Annie Uh, Walters, um, My mum's an Anne and I'm an Anne. And so we were like known as the three Annies, you know, so she really she was a big influence on me. And she was very involved in the Catholic Church. And she was very uh, she was just really she just was very focused on, you know, marginalized. I mean, she she left school when she was 14, so she wouldn't even know what the word marginalized meant. You know, she's she's dead now, unfortunately. Um, but she was very much about like attending to the vulnerable in society is the work of Catholicism, you know, and so you know, she just did a lot for, you know, disabled populations and um anyone who would she was really poor, um, but she was just, you know, she she's the type of person that she would give you, you know, she give if you were cold, she give you the cardigan she was wearing. Um so I think that just really, you know, kind of imprinted me at an early age to really be concerned with, you know, people who didn't have anything in society. Um and when I grew up, you know, and ended up studying theology and religious studies and I encountered liberation theology, um which, you know, liberation theology as I'm sure you know, really associates Jesus with the marginalized, you know, so it grew began in Latin America, um and then you know, there's a there's a there's a black theo- theological um, black theologian James Cohen. You know, talks about Jesus as as a victim of lynching and draws this kind of radical identity between you know Jesus and, and African Americans. And as soon as I, you know, as soon as I kind of encountered that theology, I was like, wow, that is that was you know, that's Nanny Walters. You know, that's that's me. So I think that you know, really like somehow I was really formed on a very immediate level in a kind of, you know, family situation to really, you know, identify spirituality with, you know, kind of solidarity with marginalized populations. Um, so that was, you know, that, I think that that was my kind of early influence. And then essentially as a teenager, you know, I realized I was gay and I couldn't stay in the Catholic church. Um, and then I kind of found my way to you know Asian kind of religions and Buddhism. Um, and so, you know, since really since I was a teenager, I've 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 really always been thinking, you know, across across like you know the metaphysics of Buddhism. And I was also really interested in Hinduism and Advaita Vedanta in particular. Um, and you know a kind of social justice orientation that's really rooted in spirituality you know that not just secular not just a secular politics but social justice as a kind of spiritual practice in a way
0: yeah Hmm. Um, you are probably the third guest that's been on this show that has talked about the impact of their grandmother that's
1: amazing I know our our nan nan, well we call her nan you know in Liverpool but probably yeah grandmothers like more recognizable to Americans um I know it's amazing though isn't it it's really it's like your lineage isn't it that you come from
0: yeah I mean it's really interesting to think about the impact that uh our our ancestors right like the people who came before us and the work that they did before us has impacted and shaped the way we think about uh our the future possibilities right and and who else is to come after
1: yeah and i know i feel really proud that i was like named after her because i've got like i'm one of five children um and i've got two sisters you know but i got i got like i got i'm really i was like the lucky one to get my grandmother's name so yeah, no, I, I yeah. think of her a lot. We're really different. You know, as I say, she left school when she was 14. And, you know, I mean, you know, I'm a associate professor now. Um, but I really, yeah, I really feel, yeah, I really feel like the kind of lineage, you know, holding the lineage.
0: And would you say that being sort of connected to her, not just through name, but I guess sort of being able to feel her presence uh, in your name and the work that you do is Sort of help to propel you forward and keep you going in this work. Yeah,
1: I really do. I was I was so happy actually when I um when I finished when I got my first copy of American Dharma in my hand because I sent it immediately. I sent the first copy that I got to my mum and you know the book's dedicated to my mum and my nan who's the other aunt. Um, I feel like you know what keeps me going. Uh, I'd first and foremost say definitely relationships. You know, relationships were with my family relationship my relationship with my wife you know is my wife is actually a feminist theologian she's much more eloquent and poetic than me Uh, you should really be interviewing her but you know she's (laughs) she's an incredible support um my friends um and also the people my research populations you know the people who I do ethnography with and on you know, so I've, I've worked a lot with Buddhists of colour. I'm now working on on the topic of Buddhism and sexual abuse. Um, and so, you know, I've been interviewing, you know, some survivors. Um, and I do feel, you know, when I get kind of overwhelmed and kind of fed up and kind of depleted, I do think about like, I think about them, you know, I feel like I have a responsibility to them. Um, and I, I think that when it's easier, isn't it, to keep going when you're doing it for someone else? Like when you feel like you're doing it for someone else, like, I mean, you have to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all for self-care and know, you know, how important that is. Uh, but I do, I do think, you know, kind of, you know, being connected to, you know, something bigger than yourself and, you know, people, you know, is, is really the, is really the most important thing at the end of the day, the end of the day.
0: Welcome back to season two of 824. I am still on the same mission and journey to discovering the connections of the mind, body, and spirit as it's related to social justice work. I am a bit closer to discovering the connections, but not quite there. I still have more questions to ask and more scholars to talk with. Thank you for sticking with me on this journey and hopefully your questions are being answered too. I am your host, Dr. Valen S. Jordan, and this is 824, the spirituality and social justice podcast.